We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. Today is February the 27th, a Saturday, and we are visiting you in your homes, on your internet radios to discuss the big news of the day. And that big news appears to be the quote-unquote cessation of hostilities in Syria, otherwise known as the ceasefire. Is it just a calm before the storm, the greater storm that uh, seems to be arraying itself in that area? Or is this some kind of uh, new progress in the situation between Syria, ISIL, ISIS, uh, Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, uh, and various other proxy armies, including uh the Free Syria organization. Anyway, we'll have a lot to discuss today on this subject. Uh, there are a lot of different things, a lot of different aspects that uh, that seem to be worthy of paying attention to. Uh, it seems like something that could uh, quickly escalate at the drop of a hat. Um, certainly all the pieces are in play uh, for such a thing to be occurring. Uh, maybe we can start by just giving a rundown up until now of how this um, ceasefire came about and, uh, and what, the, uh, what the agreement was between the U.S. and Russia to do. So, yeah, uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a really convoluted history, and, um, you know, it's, it, it speaks to, I guess, the complexity of, of all the things going on in Syria, all the different groups involved and all the different countries involved. And, you know, it's really mind-numbing to, to dig into this stuff. Um, I think fundamentally, you know, the the facts on the ground aren't as actually complicated as, as, as they can seem to be. But um, just to give a review, um, uh, because there's been many parallel efforts uh, to, you know, um, work for, you know, a peace in, in Syria. Um, and, you know, I, I would want to put that in quotes because there's clearly a lot of different motivations involved uh, with with these different groups. And, you know, obviously we know uh, that they're not all sincere. Um, but I would say... The initial talks um, in Geneva uh, from 2012 were the initial steps uh, that you know, various countries were, were taking. And um, then there were round two of those talks in 2014. And then there was round three most recently at the beginning of the month uh, in, in February 1st to February 3rd. Those talks got suspended um, after 
think uh, the Syrian army made some advances in the Aleppo province and and broke a, I think it was a four-year siege. Mm-hmm. Three and a half, four, something like that. Um, so, you know, that was a major success, and um, but not not seen from, you know, the opposition group uh, groups. And um, so the U.S. has been pushing for, you know, these talks and trying to get these, well, I wouldn't say they're trying to get these opposition groups involved because, you know, all along they haven't really released who these opposition groups are. And uh, the the obvious reason for that is because they're, you know, so closely linked to, you know, these terrorist groups. You know, they're, it's, it's, uh, it's really, it's, you know, it's like a, 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 a ball team that, you know, continually has these rotating players and continually changes their names. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's it's pretty ridiculous, and you know, there's there's dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So that that's that's been you know a pretty big obstacle in in this. Um, but along with these Geneva talks, there's also been the efforts made from the international support uh, Syrian support group, um, which is co-chaired by. United States and Russia, and also uh, includes you know a pretty diverse membership you know to include China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, um, uh, Turkey, Qatar, the UN, the EU, and and others. Uh, so they've been working and in, uh, initially I think in, it was in December uh, they. Um, they organized to um, pass this UN resolution that would uh, establish a, a ceasefire as well as a, a movement towards political resolution and um, to also enable humanitarian aid to, to reach uh, the population. Now, that didn't actually like, uh, turn out anything when after that resolution was passed. And in uh, the beginning of February, or mid-February, or it was like February 11th, was when uh, that, they, they basically made an attempt to do a initial cessation of uh, hostilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that, there it, it was, there was no, I guess there wasn't enough substance with, with that. There wasn't um, an actual agreement uh, that was enforced, um, but this latest. So fast forward, you know, a week <laughs> or so, uh, and we have this latest cessation of hostilities agreement, and it's made you know with the with the same group, the the ISSG, and um, they've had these various uh, opposition groups that have signed on and said, yes, you know, we're, we'll agree to this, this ceasefire. So, you know, what, what is going on with this and you know, what's going on behind the scenes? Um, you know, Elon opened the show with, you know, these questions, you know, is, is this, uh, is this just going to be a uh, calm before the storm or, you know, is there going to be some progress? And, you know, I, I think uh, it might be a little bit of both. Um, you know, it seems that there are some successes that may come from this, um, 
and you know there are obvious um, influences that you don't want to see actual peace in Syria, obviously. So, well, the agreement was announced on Monday. Apparently, it had been in the works between Russia and the United States in kind of secret consultations and going over and writing these documents and figuring stuff out. And so the document they produced was actually the first kind of real concrete plan to actually do something. All these other previous talks and agreements have been pretty vague and just like kind of like, oh, well, this is what we'd like to see happen in the future. But um, nothing that was that really seems to be enforceable and like immediate. So it's pretty easy to say, okay, well, we want a political transition to happen in the next year and a half. Well, where do you start, right? Now, this, on the other hand, was very... Uh, very specific in what it wanted to achieve and when. And so it was announced on Monday and went into effect midnight of last night, Damascus time. And right from the get-go, um, the, well, the, the Russians kind of took charge and started doing things really quickly. So they set up their, uh, their a center in the military air force base that they have in Khamaiman and set up a hotline, have been sending out all the information across all kinds of media platforms in Syria to let everyone know what the deal is and who they can contact. And then they've been coordinating with the United States, who has their center in Amman, um, Jordan. And right from the beginning, like the first press briefing that the, the Russian uh, military um, or defense ministry put out was that they'd contacted the U.S. and that the U.S. hadn't uh, responded back to them yet like, with their information. So, I, you know, I haven't heard a contradiction of that, but it looks like they have been communicating since then um, because in the latest um, the latest announcement of today that the, the Russians put out, they kind of summarized what they'd achieved so far and where this thing was going to start. And so before we get into those details, one of the things I found interesting about this is that, um, well, for the entire Syrian war, Russia has been basically backing an actual, you know, they, they've wanted this conflict to stop. Um, of course, any kind of right-thinking individual or nation in the civilized, quote, quote, unquote, civilized world, um, which doesn't include the United States, has actually wanted the war to stop because that's just the you know the common sense wish in a situation like this. Of course, like you guys have said, there are parties involved that do not want this conflict to stop. They want it to go um, you know full bore with the with the goal of toppling the the actual government of Syria. So, anyways, but if we just fast forward to the Russian start of the Russian intervention on September 30th. From that point, the Russians also have been, you know, just pretty much saying what they've been saying the whole time. And basically, what they've, what this ceasefire says is what they've been wanting, more or less. And what's interesting about it is that from the, from that time, they have been, the Russians have been saying to the U.S., okay, well, let's share information. We'll tell you, you know, the areas that we'll give you our intelligence on who's who and where they are, and you give us your intelligence if you're so. Um, you know, if you're so nervous about us bombing your guys, we'll tell us where they are and we won't bomb them. It's just basic information sharing. And the U.S. just bluntly refused. They would not give any information. 
So even just in this document, um, it looks to me as if the U.S. has capitulated once again on some point. doesn't mean they'll actually follow through with any kind of genuine um, truth-telling. But at least on paper, again, they're forced to do this, just like they had to do in, with Ukraine with the Minsk agreements. Um, so at least now on paper, they, they're in a, a kind of a tough spot because they keep having to, um, to kind of go along with these Russians, these pesky goddamn Russians who <laughs> write up these very commonsensical documents and policies which are just impossible to disagree with. So therefore, I mean, the Americans begrudgingly will sign them. And, oh, well, like, I mean, it's just written so well, we can't disagree with it because then we'll look like total warmongers. So I guess we have to agree with it. So there we have it. On paper, they've got to agree with it. So now, uh, at least according to the document, Russia and the U.S. will be sharing with each other all this information. So which, who these groups are, which ones have called either center, agreeing to the cessation of hostilities, sharing that information, where are they, and then officially at least, no one will be able to bomb these groups. No one will be, will be able to attack or try to take over these towns, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So just on the surface, you know, if we don't look at anything about what's actually going to happen, I think this is a, a very interesting document in the sense that it, it's like the, like the Minsk agreements, it looks like the position is, or the, the stated outcome is totally in line with what would benefit Syria and Russia um, and anyone involved on that side of the conflict. And anyone um, on the opposite side, like ISIS, al-Nusra, and the U.S. and their um, CIA-trained rebels in the in the country, they will all stand to lose, not to benefit from this. Again, just on paper as it is. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really you know concrete point, and that this is a that just that point alone that you know the U.S. has been forced basically to say, okay, these are our who are we define as opposition groups. Uh, you know, it, it's it's been it's been shared, uh, supposedly been shared with uh, the the task force, uh, which is you know the the ISSG, and th- I mean this has been something that it, it's so bizarre to I don't know if anybody watches the White or the State Department's press briefings, but I mean the these um, the reporters have been asking you know who are these groups who are these groups for months and months and months because the U.S. has been saying. Well, you know, we're, we're 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 pushing for this, and we're pushing for these peace talks with these opposition groups, and we want and the reporters like we want to know who they are, and uh, uh, we have a clip here from the uh, yesterday's uh, State Department briefing where uh, this issue is discussed, and uh, you can hear uh, there's I, I forget the first reporter's name or I don't know it, and um, Matt Lee comes in, he's he's pretty befuddled with a. Uh, with uh, Mark Toner's uh, response. 12. Now, speaking to your uh, your question, which was about uh, who says they will abide right? by the ceasefire, the cessation of hostilities. It's you, Robin. Right. Um, so, uh, let me just see what I have on that. Um, <laughs> Not much. So, come on, Toner. Uh, we do continue uh, to work with uh, the agency, uh, and uh, uh, we're aware that they have announced that uh, they would uh, participate 
uh, in the uh, cessation of hostilities. Uh, we've also seen the SDF uh, say it would also take part in the cessation of hostilities. Um, I would, without obviously giving a list uh, or, or naming, uh, going through a list of names, I would just say the vast majority of Syrian armed opposition groups uh, have told the U.S. Uh, that they have accepted the terms uh, of, of for the cessation of hostilities. And uh, as I said, many of these groups have uh, made this confirmation uh, either directly to us or through the HNC. Why, why not release the names if they're going to be part uh, well, of the it's frankly, hostilities? Why sure. not make so, them um, hold them to account if they don't? Well, due to security considerations uh, that they have, um, uh, we're not going to list their names. Uh, we obviously have the names. Uh, we're aware of the groups on the ground, but uh, they, for uh, a number of reasons, don't want their names uh, public. Are, are, are you confident? Yeah, well, uh, how, do you, how do you know if, who, who's going to judge whether they're in compliance or not? Then? Well, the, the task force that's been set up. The task force knows the names? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, you're sure about that? I, I'm fairly certain. I'm looking at this right here, and it says that uh, that, uh, but that no they have expressed. The, but the, no one, no one sorry, outside the task force opinion. knows that. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. No, that uh, that these groups have made it known uh, to the U.S. or to um, or, or via either via the agency or to us directly, and that there is uh, this list, but we're just not going to publicize it. Well, I, just, I don't understand how this is transparent or how you get any kind of an account accountability. What I mean, you. I, mean, I don't think either of us will. Maybe Arsha wants you to read the the, the, the full list, but well, I here, would like that actually. But yeah. it would be not, but it would be nice if you could provide one. More than nice, it would be it would make it would give the world some confidence that that, that this is a, that this cessation well, look, of possibilities I mean, is actually a real thing and is going to be uh, monitored and enforced. But it will be. I mean, that's partly well, the role of the task force. But I mean, but there's no way to tell from outside if we don't know who's signed up. So, uh, in other words, the dog ate my homework, and for security reasons, I I can't tell you which dog that was or how it happened, or what my answers were. <laughs> uh, this is, um, I mean, th this really just perfectly speaks to uh, the comments that uh, that both of you have made. Uh, just a moment ago, Harrison and Shane. I mean, the uh, just the sheer defining of who these um, supposedly legitimate opposition groups are. Uh, you know, it, it's such an issue just to just to bring up their names, and it's in complete contradiction. I mean, ostensibly the U.S. has been supporting these opposition groups because it believes that they're legitimate and that they have. Um, you know these these genuine grievances against the Assad government, and uh, and yet uh, Washington can't even name them. Uh, so they're you know and like one of the things that that's been pointed out by many writers recently is that um, all of these opposition groups have this kind of interpenetrating relationship with um, the Al Nusra Front. Uh, with Al Qaeda, with Daesh, uh, there there is no clear uh, delineation between the, these moderate rebels and these uh, you know and these terrorists. 
Um, and that's precisely how the U.S. would like to keep it. Um, actually, they have no choice because there is no, there are no clear boundaries. All they can do is, com- is continue to assert that these guys are uh, legitimate and moderate and not terrorists. Well, the um, <clears throat> the interesting thing here too, I think, is that yeah, you know, so the U.S. has supposedly supplied um, you know this this uh, this group, the ISSG. With, with these names, but they don't want to make it public to the people. So, you know, it, it seems to me that, you know, they don't want the public knowing that they're supporting, you know, these terrorist groups, these terrorist-affiliated groups. But with, um, and I think this is where, uh, where we can see some more of the, the genius of, you know, Russian strategy because they've provided a, an out for, mm-hmm. For both the U.S. and you know these these uh, terrorist rebels, um, in in allowing them to, you know, un, not in public, but you know, lay lay down their arms and and go along with this with this uh, political process. Yeah, and not only is it kind of giving them an out, but it's also a kind of test at the same time, because presumably any of these groups that respond and actually officially sign on to the ceasefire, the cessation of hostilities, are then going to be held to that agreement, at least by the Russians. So on the one hand, it's um, it's offering this out because all these groups that the U.S. controls can then pretend to be moderates and say, okay, we're not going to fight anymore. But on the other, um, it's a test in the sense that it's really a test of how much control the U.S. actually has over all of these groups because these guys presumably are fighting because they want to fight. And now that their big brother, Uncle Sam, um, tells them to, to lay down arms, are they going to do that? So, and if they don't, then that exposes them as, well, terrorists, which, which they are. And that's what the Syrian government has said. Anyone that doesn't, that doesn't abide by this ceasefire, that the, the Syrians justifiably um, will will respond to that and continue fighting them because they will deem them terrorists. So um, that's just another funny point about this. But as for how this is going to happen, um, I'll read out these details from uh, from the Russian military that they've given recently on a ceasefire. So apparently the Russians, at least, um, give these numbers. They say that there are 17 groups that have agreed to the to the ceasefire, and in addition to the Syrian army. And they didn't give all the names of these groups, but they mentioned some, like um, some of the Kurdish forces, for example, and uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces, who who are mostly Kurdish, but also um, Shia, the guys fighting in the north of Syria. But 17 groups that are officially part of this ceasefire as of the first day. Um, this, These groups um, are in about 34 towns and villages that are part of this ceasefire. So officially now, 34 towns and villages, the fighting um, is stopped and will be stopped. And this is in Hama, Homs, and Damascus provinces. There were three towns that negotiated to um, basically surrender themselves to Syrian army, Syrian army control. Now, so, so since Monday, the Russians at their call center received 109, 169 calls um, 42 from local authorities, 34 from militant groups from their commanders or agents of those commanders, 
and then 93 from civilians, um, 59 of those being requests um, for family members, um, for amnesty for family members fighting with militant groups. So the Russians have said they've got 70 UAVs in the air that will be monitoring whether, um, you know, what's going on and who's abiding and who's not. Um, presumably that's how they're going to tell if these, uh, if, well, if any of these groups, especially I think the, the CIA-backed ones, are actually following through with their, um, their stated intentions. And the ongoing negotiations with um, 47 other areas of towns or villages. So I'm wondering because the apparently Toner had said that there's 97 groups or something like that. Yeah, after that, after that clip, I think immediately after it actually, um, both uh, Lee and the other reporter speaking at the beginning of the clip had uh, asked if uh, for confirmation for. Uh, the number and which they had was was seventeen or uh, ninety seven, mm-hmm. which is is quite different from the seventeen figure that uh, the Russian side has. So I'm I'm just guessing here because the details aren't clear yet, but I'm I'm assuming that the seventeen groups are the ones that are directly in contact with the Russians, and maybe if that ninety seven figure is correct, those are the guys in contact with the Americans, uh, and like Toner said, not through the um, the center that was set up. In the in the Russian airbase for this purpose, but through the HNC, which is basically this operate, uh, opposition group, um, you know, with which Saudi Arabia basically runs. So through them, so they kind of um, called up their their big brother, their own big brother, and said, "Oh, hey guys, yeah, we want to be part of the ceasefire," but apparently didn't go through the correct official channels to do so. Well, actually, the um, that number has been also cited by the UN Syria envoys. Stefan Di Mastura. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I mean, who knows? The 97 number. The 97, yeah. Um, I don't know. There's there's one scenario that, that keeps kind of uh, presenting itself as a potential in all this. And, um, and the reason, or one of the reasons why I think the U.S. signed on to this agreement. And, uh, and it's, it's their own idea of laying a trap for Russia. And that is, you know, having, uh, yeah, of course, the agreement doesn't call for Russians and um, the, the Syrian army, the legitimate army, to stop attacking uh, Daesh and um, and Nusra. and Al Nusra. Thank you. And um, and so, what if, you know, what if some band of these guys get attacked in the natural course of things because that hasn't stopped, and uh, and then claim to be a moderate or claim to be part of the Free Syrian Army. There has been, in the midst of these negotiations, a continued barrage of misinformation by Mm -hmm. the West, um, including taking credit um, and and actually stealing uh, Russian uh, footage of, of, uh, of ISIS trucks being destroyed or ISIS positions being decimated and claiming that it was the Americans that, that had done this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's been done in France. It's been done in, uh, in the U S by, um, by public, uh, public television and the McNeil, you know, McNeil, uh, or the news hour, if that's what it's called. Um, so are they going to try, what's the possibility there that they'll try and, and, uh, turn the situation around and blame the Russians for, for something. 
Well, I think they'll definitely try to do that, but I don't like at least at this point, I don't think much will come out of it because they've been doing that for all these past months and nothing really um, substantial ever comes out of it. I mean, the the U.S. and all these um, so-called um, human rights organizations are talking about Russia bombing civilians, but they never give um, any kind of evidence. They never, there, there, there are no lawsuits. There's nothing actually officially going on that would that would say that this actually happened. It's all just um, PR propaganda. And of course that will, that influences public opinion, but I don't see it having a big effect on actual policies or the, or the actual um, um, like tactics of the Russians, for example, they just keep doing what they're doing because they can and they know what they're doing. So of course they'll just respond back. Well, you know, show the evidence. You don't have any fine. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So, um, at, unless they, unless the the U.S. or whoever tries something like really outrageous, I just don't see that flying at this point. Because let's say that that that, that happens, that the the Russians or the Syrians bomb, um, you know, some Nusra town, and and then the Americans come and say, oh well, this was this was one of our groups. Well, okay, first question is, had this group signed up? For the ceasefire, okay, where's the documentation? Okay, yeah, we agree with that. Um, and presumably, I'm guessing that the Russians and the Syrians are going to pretty much abide by kind of the letter of the law here as far as possible when this is when this is going down. So if a group has has signed on to the ceasefire, they will, uh, you know, they will not attack those people, at, um, especially after making a public statement that, that that this region, this area, this town is off limits. And if they do, it will be in response to some other attack. And then presumably, if that were the case, um, Russia and Syria wouldn't do that without evidence of that there being an attack as such. So they'll, they'll have the video footage of these guys you know, doing whatever that, that necessitated that response from the Syrians or the Russians. So at least just from, a, from an official you know, evidence-based position that would, that would entail some kind of um, you know, actual... Um, legitimate response. I don't see anything happening. I, but I do, of course, think that this is this is going to happen. There are going to be these kinds of of allegations and um, you know statements of this sort. But you know, I don't know. I'll, I'll just have to wait and see because um, so far from the past, how how, how many months has it been? October, November, December, like five months. Um, nothing's really come out of any of these um, attempts to kind of back Russian into a corner and say it's doing something it's not. I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. What do yeah, you think? Uh, there is that clause. There is a clause in, in the agreement that, you know, uh, any party can, uh, has the ability for you know, self-defense as long as it's uh, mm -hmm. reasonable and proportionate. Um, so I, I would imagine, you know, at some point, you know, when these uh, Saudi Arabian supported groups or Turkish supported groups, you know, may kind of fly off the wall and and um, you know a, a attack uh, Syrian soldiers or or what uh, Syrian town or whatever, um, and you know they'll try to use this clause uh, as a means of saying that they were justified. Um, but I, I agree with you, Harrison, that you know there is um, the as far as evidence goes that Russia has always come out uh, on top because it has been so public about saying, you know, we're, this is what we're doing, this is where we're doing it. And um, and the other issue, which I, I think is interesting, um, 
is just the the size, you know, whether it's 17 groups or 97 groups. Um, you know, this isn't a huge part of um, the the conflict in Syria. Mm -hmm. the, the overall conflict is is huge. It's humongous. Um, Russia came out with a statement saying, you know, these are the people that we won't, we won't be targeting, and the number was like around six or seven thousand. Yeah, I, I read in a, a report that that was that was actually the number that the Americans had provided to the Russians, because at this point the each each group had made up a map, and at least on the Sputnik article I read that they'd said that the Americans had sent the Russians their map with their groups, and that these groups comprised six thousand one hundred eleven. Um, approximately fighters you know, in these groups. So I'm not, I'm wondering which was which because the that, the Russian guy had made that in his statement today. Yeah, this this was from Sputnik as well. I'm not sure if it's the same, but um, yeah, it was saying that it was the from the chief of the main operational Victoria from the general staff of the Russian armed forces mm -hmm. that the uh, Russia is providing the U.S. with um, a list of armed groups exceeding six thousand. People uh, that that they won't be targeting. Okay, yeah, maybe it was some, maybe it was something lost in translation because yeah, I watched the I watched the video of that guy and I don't think it was it it wasn't clear on the translation of the video um, which side he was talking about. But I don't know. It's I guess it's minor. Uh, well, in any case, the the um, point that I was trying to make was just the size of you know uh, this of the amount of people that it's going to be covering. Yeah. And the amount of conflict is is actually minimal. Um, you know the the overall um, fighting, you know, with um, with Al Nusra and ISIS and you know the terrorist groups, not including the so-called opposition. You know, it's just it's 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 so massive um, that you know for Russia to give in a little bit and say, uh, okay, we won't be targeting these uh, Al Nusra affiliated. Uh, opposition groups, you know, that's that's uh that's, that's not a you know any big um, thing on their part to to kind of give into. Mm -hmm. What I found interesting is that for at least from the data the Russians have given, it's interesting to look at a map of the conflict and see which groups so far have not signed on to the ceasefire, have not contacted the Russians. Because the only groups so far that the that the Russians have um, agreed. You know, not to bomb, are just a few kind of tiny pockets. One in the south of the country, um, in Dara, which is basically it's right around the border crossing the Jordan, and then around some of the major cities. So there's a group just north of Homs, and the and a small group um, just to the, just above Damascus, and then a little pocket in, um, I believe, kind of. I think it's like in Idlib province, but that's where all the rebels and al-Nusra are. So just there's a small group of them right on the front with the Syrian army, and then a tiny group um, up near up with the Kurds in um, like uh, I can't remember the name of the which of the province where they are, but so the people not included in that, of course, is all of Deir Azor, which um, which ISIS controls, all of Raqqa which is ISIS and some other rebel groups, and then the vast majority of um, Idlib province, which is the Turkish-backed whoever and al-Nusra and rebels, you know, um, of all sorts. 
So none of these groups have contacted the Russians. So when you actually look at the map, there's very few groups who have presumably actually called the the official operations center and and signed on to this ceasefire. So at least from this, it looks to me as if, well, it, it kind of tells everyone what they should have already known, is that most of these rebel fighting groups aren't really aren't interested in peace, and they're not moderate rebel groups. They're just going to they plan on fighting to the bitter end, and so the way I see it, it's not that this ceasefire is going to be a total failure. It's just that things are going to be pretty much go on exactly as, as they have gone gone on, with these minor pockets of cessation of hostilities, and that. But that's simply because this ceasefire is, in my mind, kind of designed to expose the fact that all, none of these groups are moderate, that, the, that they're, they're all you know, linked to, mostly these groups involved are linked to Al-Qaeda in some way. They fight with them. I mean, that's everyone, well, I say everyone, but everyone with a brain should have known that for years now. And so... Um, so in that sense, I think it's going to be a huge success in the sense that you're going to have a tiny few examples of a cessation of hostilities, but the, all the other groups are just going to be exposed as not being interested in it, and the fighting is going to continue, and then um, that will give the justification, at least in Syria and Iran and Russia's eyes, that the fighting will continue until uh, ISIS and al-Nusra, two main groups, are destroyed, and that will include pretty much all of these so-called moderate rebel groups, because they are tied mostly with al-Nusra, but with Daesh as well. Well, in the midst of all of this happening, we have Saudi Arabia mobilized in one of the largest uh, war preparation exercises it's ever done. Uh, 350,000 uh, military personnel from a coalition of over 20 countries. Middle Eastern uh, countries. Middle Eastern countries primarily all aligned with Saudi Arabia, uh, all preparing to go into Syria under cover of, quote-unquote, fighting the terrorists. But, uh, of course, because Daesh and the other um, parties there are primarily supported by Saudi Arabia, uh, have been created by Saudi Arabia in large part, it's pretty clear to a lot of observers that they're not going there to, uh, to attack uh, these terrorists, but rather to protect them. Uh, you also have Turkey amassing its troops, tens of thousands along the borders between Turkey and Syria at the same time. And, uh, and they're just chomping at the bit uh, at this point. They are all prepared to go in there and, and do their worst. And, and what would that mean? Uh, that would mean, um, again, under cover of fighting terrorism, I think actually attacking uh, the military of uh, Bashar al-Assad, as well as Hezbollah, uh, the, the Iranian contingent, um, and Russia's personnel as well. So uh, it seems like you have this gigantic um, kind of uh, fire uh, that's ready at the light of a match to be lit and and uh, explode this entire situation. It could go there. Um, we don't know that it will go there. Uh, you know, if it's true that Turkey's uh, taking down of the Russian bomber a couple of months back 
was kind of given tacit uh, approval by NATO and or the U.S., even despite what what the U.S. and NATO said afterward, uh, it means that, that this entire horde um, comprising of these 350,000 uh, personnel um, and, and Turkey's military can be given the go-ahead uh, on almost any kind of pretense. Um, and, and so I wonder at this point, uh, what can we say the probability is that they're going to be mobilized? Um, I would I would just add one more thing, and and that is that um, Israel, for the most part, has been very quiet, uh, except for a few statements and I think a conversation with Putin recently about you know not using the Golan Heights, the contested region between Syria and Israel, um, and and not kind of interfering with uh, with with that area, um, but you know obviously there. We know that that the puppet masters in in the U.S. and Israel um, are kind of just, it seems, looking for some way uh, to turn the situation around. And I wonder if the the proxy army of of Daesh uh, and on the front uh, are about to be expanded half a million fold um, in the form of Saudi Arabia and Turkey's militaries. Well, this um, this military buildup with uh, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, you know, it, it's been happening, um, you know, for the past month or so, maybe a little bit more, and you know, it, it was getting really, really frightening, uh, you know, to to see them and you know Turkey's vision for you know the uh, capture having, you know, uh, I forget what they called it, but you know, they basically wanted in ten kilometers into uh into Syria uh, around the border and you know and they're amassing troops and um and working with Saudi Arabia in you know this plan for a uh you know an, an invasion into Syria and it's it's uh it's just madness because of the consequences that you know would result so the ceasefire agreement you know when that was uh, established you know it couldn't have come at a better time i think because that did take away um, support for you know any kind of invasion from them, uh, so I think it kind of does put as long as there is this movement towards having a ceasefire or supporting at least a ceasefire. I can't see um, Turkey and Saudi Arabia, you know, giving the go ahead to actually have a, a an invasion within Syria. And there's also uh, there have also been a couple of reports about the internal situations in Saudi Arabia and Turkey and that the militaries of both countries are not really on board with this whole thing. The Turkish generals apparently are not interested in going into Syria and the Turkish military has a history of staging coups d'etat against the Turkish governments. They kind of run things over there. So if, and that kind of ties in with the whole Turkish buildup because if you look at how the Turks did it, they didn't do it very well. They basically started their buildup and then announced it and made it totally public. And at that point, I mean, if you're planning an invasion, you don't do that. You try to make it as secret as possible until the moment. And then as soon as the, the so-called enemy finds out about it, you just you charge in there because your, your cover's blown, basically, and it's, it's do or die. Instead, they kind of you know, amassed a few 
or you know some troops and some tanks, and everyone knew about it, and the Russians knew about it, giving the Russians plenty of time to prepare for that eventuality, which they did, and then that kind of just it takes the the surprise element out of it, and there's it's it's like now they're ready for it if they ever were to, and same with Saudi Arabia. The, there, there. Um, s- several generals in the Saudi Arabian military came forward and, and with a statement saying that there's no way we're doing that. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, we don't have the power, and we don't have the, you know, we don't have the strength. We don't have the, the capacity. And just look at the the situation in Yemen. The Saudi Arabians have been waging this war for a long time now, and just doing a total piss poor job at it. Um, you know, uh, they have totally failed to invade and take over the the poorest country in the region and they've been they've been battling these uh you know homegrown moderate um rebels in in yemen and haven't been able to defeat them the the saudis are running out of money i don't i just don't see how they could do it the only thing i can see them presumably doing is just sending more fighters over to actually join isis and uh, but i at least at this point, I don't see them actually launching an official invasion. I don't think it would work. Um, I, I don't think it would. It, well, on the one, uh, well, it would go against the kind of even official narrative um, because it doesn't look like the U.S. or NATO would get behind it at this point. And the so at least officially, the U.S. wants peace. It wants a political process. It took the Russians to to get the U.S. to at least say that. And so I think that any kind of like overt invasion at this point would just totally go against the established narrative. They would be dealing with a massive Russian response and things would, things would escalate a lot. The war would get a lot bigger. And that's the, that's kind of the, the fear involved in it, in that, in, in that if, if it actually happened, if, if Saudi Arabia and Turkey were so stupid, it would cause uh, a much greater conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it's just a matter of, you know, if they're going to take that, make that stupid decision or not. Well, a couple of things. So, like, um, as far as going against the narrative, uh, recently the U.S. I think tried to strike uh, Al Qaeda out of you know the groups that Russia would be legitimately targeting. And you know, hello, Al Qaeda. You know, the guys who are responsible for 9/11. And yet, you know, in contradiction to that. Uh, we're, we're kind of in support, like they're our friends now, uh, sort of. And, and so um, I, I think that there is so much desperation uh, on the part of uh, Turkey and Saudi Arabia, despite uh, the wiser heads uh, that may be speaking in contradiction, because uh, they have so much invested in, in basically getting Assad out mm-hmm. um, that I wouldn't put it past them uh, to to act really stupidly uh, to their own detriment and and fly in there at the drop of an ambiguous message on the part of the U.S. that said, well, maybe something, something. And and the reason I, you know, the reason I'm kind of going in that direction, there have also been a couple of other kind of um, uh, articles that SOTS covered recently. Um, and there's this idea that uh, Erdogan, um, maybe like the new kind of Saddam Hussein, there might be a similar dynamic involved in uh, in the U.S. using Erdogan to um, to basically create more chaos 
and uh, and help institute a plan B uh, for balkanization uh, in Syria, uh, the way it's attempted to do in Iraq. Um, and and okay, yeah, can you get into that uh, plan B because that's been coming up a lot with Kerry uh, and yeah, some other talking heads. What that what that is exactly? Well, uh, basically, it's really consistent with um, you know Israel's uh, neocon. Uh, Oded Yunan, and this is something we've discussed here on the show previously. Uh, it's this long-term plan to destabilize these major Middle Eastern countries and uh, basically carve them up at, so that there is no viable kind of cohesive government and force uh, to counteract the imperial ambitions of, of Israel and the U.S. in the Middle East so that Israel and the U.S. can go in and and basically uh, lay claim to certain areas or facilitate certain plans for for gas pipelines and whatever else they want to do. Um, and uh, I think it's uh, Alon Yelaim, one of the defense ministers of Israel or one of those higher ups, recently reiterated this idea of a Plan B um, in in one of his interviews. Kerry, in fact, recently, very recently said, well, if this ceasefire doesn't work, we'll just have to go to plan B, which amounts to uh, carving up Syria. And um, basically the Russians are like, you know, what are you talking about? You know, There's no plan B. <laughs> plan B from outer space? Well, it's a ridiculous uh, statement. Like just this idea of this plan B, you know, it's, it's like out of a... a uh, James Bond movie or something. Let's let's implement Plan B. Ha ha ha! You know, it's it's just it's just ridiculous. And they don't have any authority for it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no absolutely no legal authority to do. I mean, and they don't have the foothold in Syria like they like they did in uh, Iraq. You know, it's 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 uh, it's just absurd. I, I think I think it's a lot of hot air. Honestly, I mean, I'm I'm sure. A lot of the you know politicians in, in Washington are serious about that hot air, mm-hmm. but you know the fact is that the U.S. is isn't the influential power in Syria uh, that it thinks it that it thinks it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, in essence, by saying that, Kerry was sabotaging the whole thing from the get-go because he's essentially saying to all his, well, all the United States' CIA-backed rebel groups that. If you violate the ceasefire, then we'll carve up Syria for you and give your own give you your own Islamic state. It's it's ridiculous, um, and it just shows how irresponsible Kerry and the whole American establishment are in their statements. They just say these ridiculous ridiculous things that can have such far-reaching and negative impact on entire groups of people, and they just say them as if it's nothing. It's totally irresponsible and. Uh, well, that's that's what I like about the the Russians is they 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 constantly comment on how irresponsible and childish and unprofessional. unprofessional these guys are. It's like you know, get your act together. We're trying to have an adult conversation, and you know you're. Well, we might have a call here. Let's see if we have a caller on the air. Hello, caller. Are you there? Hi, I'm just listening. Okay. Enjoy. Thank you. Let's see, we might have one other here. 
Hello, caller. Yes, can you listening? hear me? Can you hear yes, me? Yes, we hear you well. Okay, excellent. This is Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so, so I have a couple comments. Um, you know, uh, I think that I kind of look, I try to look at this, um, you know, I pay a lot of attention to this particular website called um, Syria Perspective. And then I also go to mm-hmm. Syria Reddit, which people talk about like particular battles in this town and that. And I've been following this, but I really don't have the time to like look at it in depth and look at maps. And so it's pretty confusing. But then I then I try to like frame it in a macro sense, you know, in the in the historical evolution of this situation. And the way I see it is that um, the United States uh, became um, lazy and imperialist, um, hubristic, and um, they made some humongous mistakes um, before the Iraq War, the second one, um, but they just got dumb and they made some humongous mistakes. And this empire of the United States actually despises democracy intensely, but they have been able to uh, put forward their... um, imperialist uh, uh, narrative of we support, you know, for decade after decade, when in fact they despise the idea that everyday people should have a say in in their destiny. So um, what happened is they became big and bully, but they made so many mistakes that they they thought that they could just, um, like with this, what they did with Iraq, and then when Iraq starts going into civil war, um, you know, these sectarian um, Sunni Shi'i uh, divisions that really were muted until the United States came in there and, and spoiled the whole thing, destroying the state. Um, so then when this ISIL developed, this Islamic State, um, it developed in the United States. was like, okay, we're just going to let this grow. We're going to take out Syria, and we're a big bully, but we're going to act like we're like, we're not part of it, and they they just let it grow. And um, but their their lies compounded on lies. They bring Saudi Arabia, Qatar into the picture, and Turkey. And um, Saudi Arabia is going to like fund these jihadists. They go into with mercenaries. They go into Syria. They go to these remote areas, these little small communities that are rural. And they're mostly Sunni. So you got a bunch of thugs, you know, this civil war starts developing. You got a bunch of thugs coming in your community. You're going to like, you're going to be scared. And even if you don't like their uh, game plan, you're going to, you're going to like send your kids out to help fight with them or else you're going to die. And that's where we're at today is that um, the situation is, it's seemingly so confused, but the, what, where, where Russia came in at is at a particular point where the lies of the United States and the United States being so cynical in working with these um, jihad, uh, Wahhabist, jihadist, um, extremist mercenaries, they, they, just, they, they got themselves in such a corner that all Putin has to do is go in there and say, look, we're going to protect the viability of the state. And um, we're going to let everybody vote. So right now, the way I see it, 
is that um, the problem in Syria is that in these remote areas, you've got a bunch of mercenary thugs that are kind of like ruling the roost in these little towns, and the native Syrians that are like, wow, you know, you know, we were down with this in the beginning, but like now we're we're kind of trapped, where we can't come out and like oppose these thugs. So what what Russia's doing right now with this ceasefire, and by the way, they've grounded their planes. They're going to let this play out politically, in that there's going to be a divide and conquer where these groups, these little jihadist mercenaries, are not going to be able to maintain. Uh, hegemony in these little rural hamlets, and uh, people will be ratting them out, pointing out the the mercenaries, and this is going to be a slow political process. This is the way I see that their strategy is playing going to play out. They're going to let these people rat each other out, divide and conquer, and um, they don't have to. They're going to they're going to let them. Uh, if the United States and Turkey and the and the Saudis try to bring in a bunch of mercenaries. They're going to expose the intelligence of these people coming in. They're going to, they're going to be really patient, and they're just going to let everything play out to support the viability of the state, eventual elections. Because if you can get these um, extremist uh, Saudi-funded mercenary thugs out of the picture slowly, then you can let people in these rural Sunni um, small hamlets develop a political party that peacefully engages into the process of um, of S- Syrian democracy, and um, and then there could be some reforms. They can find a voice and all of that. So um, I see this as a brilliant move, and um, the reason um, that Saudi Arabia and Turkey, I mean, um, yeah, Saudi Arabia and Turkey. That they and, and um, the reason that Turkey shot down that jet is that the United States is so flat-footed that they're so desperate that they go to these desperate moves. With the their only hope is that Putin will react emotionally, and he'll be he'll be he'll make some crucial mistakes where the the general dynamic of how this unfold, is unfolding in Syria in Russia's favor in Iran's favor how all of that kind of becomes destroyed by a crucial mistake done on the part of Russia and uh, its allies in the region. So I see this as totally brilliant, and um, it's going to be a divide and conquer. And they've already, like, they've surrounded Aleppo. They've cut, out, they've cut off the major supply lines that were bring, being funneled through Turkey into Syria. They've cut that off, you know, the major ones. And now it's just like all they have to do is let this play out politically and diplomatically, slowly and slowly, because the United States narrative and Saudi and Turkey, all of they look so stupid and hypocritical and confused. They have no narrative that they could rally um, world opinion on their side. So this is like brilliant, and um, this is actually the best way for it to play out it's just like slowly and slowly, you know, you let these, you eliminate these extremist mercenary thugs, and then you let these people that had aligned with them out of fear and bad decisions in the past, when they thought that Assad was going to, and the government was going to go down, they made bad decisions aligned with these people. 
So you've got to let everybody save face. The United States has to be able to save face and go, get out of this mess. And it's so brilliant how Putin and Lavrov have, like, played this to, like, not escalate this into an all-out war that draws, you know, to World War Three. But they allow the imperialist bully, the United States, to save face and because they made so many bad decisions, but they've got to save face. You know, at the end of the scenario, um, there's going to be a, um, an, a, a geopolitical grouping of Iran, Lebanon, Syria that form a counterforce, a counter um, U.S. imperialist, imp, imperialist um, hegemony in the region. So the United States is totally like, not totally excluded from the, the area, but it's not the only major player in that that vital region. So um, I'm enjoying your, y'all's conversation, and I just wanted to um, relate to y'all how, how I'm seeing this playing out in the kind of the macro dynamic. I uh, appreciate your thoughts, Stephen. Um, you know, I think one one element that you know, is really to benefit uh, Syria is that it, <clears throat> it already does have a you know really strong uh, political structure in place. And you know, I think it was uh, when Assad had his re-elections in 2014, mm-hmm. uh, mid mid 2014. Yeah, he had he he had like 89 uh, or 88 of the vote, and I think you know it was around the same number uh, with a, a voter turnout. And you know this is in the midst of the Syrian crisis going on, and you know that that's just that's phenomenal to me. And you know it, it beats the pants off of you know, any kind of European country, the United States, you know, we don't see numbers uh, like that. And so, you know, there is, um, you know, if 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 the U.S. is going to be trying to maneuver uh, politically within Syria, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's it's blinded by wishful thinking. Yes, and, and I wanted to mention one more thing. You know, when this uh, supposed disagreement between um, – Russia and the Syrian president Assad. Assad makes a statement that yes, I'm I'm confident that we'll eventually conquer, reconquer all of Syria. And then when Putin comes out and Russia comes out and says, no, 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 hold on, you know we're not we're not we're not down with that. That was a total calculated mind a, a mind. It, it was a it was a uh, it was meant to give the impression. Uh, that um to that to the people that are fighting Assad that um there could be a different scenario, but that was a calculate these were calculated announcements, and um they're playing this so brilliantly, you know diplomatically and politically that um I'm seeing that it's gonna it's gonna take a few years for this to draw down, but if they can just keep a major conflagration from developing like Turkey getting involved in this and invading, um, you know, it's just, I just don't see that happening, but they've been, they've been, they've been, uh, the United States has so utterly failed that they do these things just to try to provoke a reaction that's going to change the dynamic on the part of um, Putin and Russia. And it's just, 
it's just not going to I, – I just don't see it happening. They've just been so brilliant in the way they've done this. And really, when you back up from it, you know, what are the important things to protect here? In my opinion, it's the viability of the state, you know, the idea that a state can be sovereign and determine its own uh, political dynamics um, configuration in future – and it's just not all down to, like, might makes right. You can just, like, whack this government and then that one, you know. So they protect that. But there's, in my opinion, really um, the, the other vital principle that's being protected by Putin and Russia is real, authentic democracy, the idea that you just don't have to be a, a you know, a victim to the dynamics that, go, that are at play that, that people can can form alliances through politics and have a say in the in the in the dynamic and the unfolding of the state, and that's a crucial element um, that that is from the Enlightenment era era um, that I think is just really just totally crucial. Unless we're going to have total chaos and and um, you know catastrophes one after another going into the future, so. Um, Anyway, I, I enjoy y'all's show, and I enjoy all the um, the deep discussion of this issue. And um, I just see this as like just totally brilliant. I'm I'm buoyed by these developments. And uh, so, anyway, God bless y'all, and, and I'll I'll continue listening. Okay. Thanks for your comments, Stephen. Thanks, Stephen. All right. Bye bye. I guess uh, I guess we can take some amount of. Pleasure in seeing that uh, the ceasefire is a, another kind of um, extension of uh, the kind of master chess playing chess board on the part of uh, Putin, Lavrov, and uh, and Russia. Um, my my fear, um, my um, uh, what keeps what keeps rearing its ugly head is just how. Uh, desperate uh, both Saudi Arabia and Turkey are to protect their investment um, in Syria and how relentless and how strong the drive is on the part of the U.S. and Israel uh, to continue the work that it started in Iraq, in Libya, uh, in various other places. And um, I guess there's just so much speculation uh, we can do about how this will play out, um, but uh, but it just seems like you know it's just a question of time until uh, you know another false, stupid, desperate move is made on the part of uh, these nations that uh, that don't that are kind of almost confident enough to do uh, these stupid and desperate moves. Um, given how little of the truth of the situation has been shared among most Western nations, I think for sure that that they well they have and they will continue to act out in desperation. But I'm not sure that they will be successful in the end, because I think what it, at least the way I'm seeing it now is that the like the West in general, like the US in particular, has just has been able to get away with so much for so long that they can't comprehend not getting away with it. Mm-hmm. 
And coming up against all this opposition and being repeatedly rebuked and put down just makes them that much more desperate to reestablish themselves as this kind of um, unstoppable force that can do whatever they want. But I, I don't know if they can, at least not in this situation. It's not looking like it just because they haven't, it, it, they haven't been able to get away with it for the past five months. And um, so, but like you, I, I mean, I, I don't even want to really predict what's going on because I know that there's so much um, vital information that we don't have in order to make you know any kind of prediction about what's going on. We can see like general trends and stuff like that, but there's I, I'm, I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff, um, you know, the important information, facts on the ground that determine and will determine what's what's coming up, but that we just don't know about. Um, you know what all the stuff that gets said behind closed doors, the the secret negotiations, the um, all that kind of stuff. And but what I, one of the areas I'm interested in is Israel because, because like you like you said earlier, they've been pretty quiet, and this, some of the statements that have come out recently have just been just so over the top about how they. I mean, basically, Yalon and uh, I think it was just that guy, maybe one other have 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 said basically that. Uh, ISIS is, or Al-Nusra isn't so bad. And Erdogan said the same thing recently. He was saying, um, well, you know, Al-Nusra fights ISIS, so why is it so bad? <laughs> and, it's, and the Russian, like some of the Russian bloggers, and I, I think even Maria Zakharova um, responded just like, what? What are you saying? <laughs> like, did you really just say that? Yeah. And, there's, and, a, there's even a, this uh, article from Reuters um, just a few days ago where uh, there was a source uh, close to the peace talks uh, from the Syrian opposition, um, where they're, they're basically, you know, they're coming out publicly say, saying this, that, um, uh, that you know, that this, this truce is supported, but it would be conditional uh, on the Al-Qaeda-linked Nusra front no longer being attacked by Syrian government forces. Now, this is an Arusha article, and you know they're basically saying, you know, we have ties to Arusha, so don't, you know, don't attack them, don't yeah. attack us. Yeah, and it's just kind of the point of absurdity. But um, well, well, I think we can come back to some more of the ceasefire stuff. But I just wanted to to veer off topic for a sec, just to maybe give some context, because I've been reading this book. I just started it. It's called um, Who Killed Hammerschold? The UN, the Cold War, and White Supremacy in Africa. It's by Susan Williams. She wrote it just a couple of years ago, um, and it's about the assassination of, well, the presumed assassination of Doug Hammerschold, who was the second UN Secretary General. And he got, basically, his he died in a, a plane accident in the Congo at the time because the UN was engaging in this this operation to essentially preserve the uh, the Congo's sovereignty and to kick out all of the the foreign influence in that newly um newly independent country so just as a, a basic rundown um cuz a lot of these african regions were basically colonies they were controlled by various european nations the congo region was controlled by belgium and so there were the the four I believe it was 1960, 
that uh, 1960 or 61 when Congo became independent. But until that point, and even during that point, the 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 the, the people there in the country was basically ruled by multinational corporations that were just totally exploiting not only the natural resources, but the people of that region. It just had a, a horrible history of violence and exploitation. And so Congo became independent and Patrice Lumumba was the the prime minister or president. I can't remember which because they were, two, they were uh, both in that system. And so he came to power and he was a pan-African um, politician. So basically in the tradition that um, that's, uh, Gaddafi came out of and that Gaddafi um, had pretty much, well, he, he had successfully ruled over Libya for so many years and had this uh, pan-African kind of ideal behind it all. Um, and that that's where Lumumba was going at that time. But naturally, in response to that, there were a lot of people that weren't happy. And so that included, first of all, the Belgians, but also the all the kind of European corporations that were involved. And so what happened was the very soon after their independence, um, there, were, there was all kinds of internal strife in the country. So first of all, the United Nations got behind Lumumba because Hammarskjöld was very much um, like the way he saw the United Nations is that it was an an independent entity that was, for him, designed to protect the weak from the strong. And he was very explicit about that, and that was, that was the way he saw it. And he, because the UN at the time was still a very, a very young institution and hadn't, um, at least at that point, it, hadn't, it, it, it wasn't totally controlled in the sense that it is now, and it wasn't totally ineffectual. There was still the, the opportunity or the chance that it could be something. And um, Hammarskjöld kind of took that opportunity and went as far as he could, um, ultimately unsuccessfully. But um, so what happened is in the Congo, the, the, southern, the southern region of the country, Katanga province, um, it, it ended up seceding from Congo and uh, declaring its own independence. And it was led by this, uh, this guy named Chishombe, who was a total uh, Belgian puppet. Um, he 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 worked with and called in Belgian military. The Belgians um, didn't want to officially um, support him because uh, the the UN, the entire UN, had unanimously agreed with the UN um, or agreed to kind of um, support the official um, the official government of Congo. But this Tshombe, um, who was who basically took over and seceded. Katanga, that region was the most was the most wealthy part of Congo. It had the most natural resources, so Congo could not survive without Katanga. And so this was a very calculated move. It had been planned in advance. The Belgians knew um, that if this were to happen, Katanga would successfully, you know, leave Congo. It would it, and it would totally destroy the country, and they'd they'd still have everything they wanted, which was the money and the the resources. And so Deschambe called in. Um, all kinds of mercenaries, white mercenaries from from European countries and and from other parts of South Africa, and engaged in this base, basically the civil war in in Congo. And the so Hammarskjöld and the UN um, came up with this plan, and there was this United Resolution called United Nations uh, Security Council resolution that went through to 
um, it, it, it reminds me of what's going on with Syria now because the UN came in and said, okay, well, we totally stand for the, the sovereignty of Congo. We will only deal with the legitimate leader of Congo, and, which was Lumumba before he was assassinated, and that we are calling for the removal of all foreign troops. Belg the, the Belgian military has to get out. And, um, and, so the UN, and when all this kind of started going south, the UN sent sent in troops to, to um, support the, the actual Congo government and, and military. And things just went crazy because the, the, the European powers, the Western powers that ruled Congo and that ruled all these different countries in Africa would not stand for this happening, for Congo to actually gain its own independence and to cut them off from what they had been exploiting for so long. So there are all these white mercenaries coming in. And um, just as an overview, I want to read just a, a few really kind of pointed quotes from the book just to point out the attitude that we, that we saw back then and that we see nowadays in regards to, to what's going on in Syria. But just as a kind of overview, what I saw happening then is that this was kind of the first opportunity, um, well, because this was the first time the UN had engaged in this kind of mission to actually go in militarily and support uh, a leader and a country like this and in, in order to assert and um, support its, its sovereignty and to get out all of the foreign powers exploiting it. And that's what essentially led to the assassination of not only Lumumba, he was arrested. Um, well, first of all, the his prime, I think, yeah, he's president and his prime minister, who was a previous kind of opponent and, ally, and enemy of his, he gave him the position of prime minister because he wanted to, um, to basically unify the factions in the country and develop a strong unified government. And this guy had been working with, with the, the, the kind of fifth column, the, the, the rulers of this, and they, they, called, they, they took over his government. They, they um, took away Lumumba's powers. He was arrested. He was sent to prison, he was tortured and executed, which was, um, which was in the CIA's playbook all along. I'll get to that. But what I, what I see looking back on this is that Harishold was trying to do with the United Nations what Putin is doing with Russia and is trying to um, reestablish in the world um, through international law in the United Nations was to have an actual um, independent body. Now, Russia can't be said to be truly independent because Russia has its own interests. But Russia is doing things in such a way as to support these principles and to kind of, it seems like he's almost, or, um, you know, Russia is almost seeming to, to pull the UN up by its bootstraps to say, well, this is what we're doing. This is what you should be doing. This is what the organization of the UN should represent and should be able to do. Of course, it hasn't and it doesn't do that at this point. Um, it, for ever since Hammershold, it's, it's been almost like a totally um, well, corrupt and ineffectual organization that doesn't really can, can't really get anything much done of any real effect. This is what Hammershold was trying to do at the time, but he was walking in kind of uncharted territory, and by doing this, by taking this move, this was kind of like the, this was, well, from reading this book, it seems to me it was the Syria of the, of the time, 1961. This stuff was going down, and Hammershold saw what was going down and decided to use the UN in the way that it should have been used and should be used today, which was as this truly independent organization that works for and supports the weak against the strong. And with these principles of, 
of international sovereignty and international law, and he was killed for it because this can't this kind of stuff can't happen like this isn't the way the world works um and that was kind of a uh, a dynamic of of Hammarskjöld's um, you know tenure in the United Nations is that he was kind of picked because everyone thought he was just going to be this paper paper pusher guy with with no real backbone and he turned out to have a real backbone and to 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 try these things out and unfortunately he probably you know he didn't have the experience the United Nations as an institution didn't have the experience and so it was just like thrown out there and you know he was killed and uh, Lumumba was killed and um you know that that it's the same kind of thing that we saw happening more recently in countries like Iraq Afghanistan and Libya and now Syria except now Syria has um uh, a protector in Russia that is actually doing these things and has the capability of doing them because of their new superpower status that they've that Russia has regained after the 90s so um it's just uh, uh, it's I just find it interesting to look at the dynamics of what was going on then and how similar they are to today but how there is a new kind of force in the world and that is represented by by Russia and if only we could you know more nations could kind of get behind that and realize what um you know what it is and what it could be for the planet um you know some maybe some minor things could could change but um getting back to to the the quotes from this book by Susan Williams um so like i said this was happening in 1960 61 belgians involved uh, the uk um kind of the same like the the whole like what we'd call the the west today like eu the us um all these nations exploiting other countries and just thinking they own them and well maybe in fact owning them but uh but not being able to let go. So when all this was going down um Alan Dulles for example, um he heard about Soviet assistance uh to Lumumba's government because Lumumba had been doubting the the efficacy of the UN and so he called for for Soviet he called the Soviets at the time and said, "Okay, well can you send me some stuff like some some equipment and stuff like that?" And so they they were getting it. and the head of the the UN mission at the time Ralph Bunch um he thought that was reasonable he said there's no bar at all against equipment from the big powers uh, we're using a lot of american equipment for example but um he he added the the americans uh, might see that differently so of course the us government was appalled that uh that the soviets were were helping out because they saw lumumba as a as a communist and they didn't want the congo to to become a uh you know a, a communist controlled nation they wanted they wanted total control as they did across the whole world but so Alan Dulles heard about this and he sent an urgent telegram to the CIA agent kind of in charge in the region um Devlin was his last name and he said that the removal of Lumumba must be an urgent and prime objective this should be a high priority of our covert action part of the course of course and so they even the the CIA then brought deadly poisons uh, to the country t- to assassinate Lumumba and so Dulles the CIA handed over several poisons one was concealed in the tube of toothpaste <laughs> if Lumumba used it he would appear to die from polio so right at that point when Lumumba was still alive um they planned his assassination then like i said he was arrested and executed um so i 
I'm guessing, you know, most likely not only with CIA sanction, but probably support as well, because the, the people involved in his in his arrest and execution were intimately tied with um, with all these factions and with all these organizations. So on September 5th, 1961, the um, so at the on the urging of Larry Devlin, this was a CIA guy, and with the support of Daphne Park, an MI6 official in Leopoldville, which was the um, capital of Congo, um, President Kasavubu dismissed Lumumba and six other ministers. So that was basically the the coup. They they dismissed him. The the CIA and MI6 facilitated the removal of Lumumba, which led to his uh, arrest and execution. Um, very very nice. You know, <laughs> that's what these people get away with. And then to read some of the responses, like first of all, a lot of people in the non-aligned movement, so the nation's not aligned with with either of the big powers. They were they really um, on the one hand they they really supported Hammarskjöld, but when things didn't get done, they didn't really support him. But um, President of Ghana, for example, Kwame Nkrumah, um, he said that the he kind of summed up the, what was really going on. That this was he didn't necessarily support like Lumumba, like party-wise or ideologically, it was simply a matter of principle. So he said that the main issue was the principle of recognizing the legitimate central government, which had invited the UN to enter the Congo. To do anything to damage the prestige and authority of that government, he said, would be to undermine the whole basis of democracy in Africa. And of course, he was totally speaking the truth, and we see the same thing today with Syria, And but we only see... The Russians saying that, you know, maybe the, and the people aligned with Russia, like China. No one else is in the in the West is talking about the the whole basis of democracy in the Middle East, because according to that basis, Assad is the democratically elected ruler of of Syria. And to like like we were saying about this Plan B thing, it's that, that on what on no planet should this Plan B thing be anything to even talk about because it, there's, it's got no basis in any kind of democratic principles or international law. And that just exposes just how much of a sham democracy is in this world. And it's been a sham you know, since the very beginning. And it's been a sham since 1961 when Lumumu was assassinated. And um, just another parallel is that the, the armies that these guys were using, like the, the Katanga army, they brought in all these white mercenaries. And they've got... Uh, Williams has some interviews um, that were published from these guys. Like the, there's this guy, he was an English mercenary that was that fought. And he was fighting a group of basically, there, there was a group in Katanga that were, that were loyal to Lumumba. And so they were fighting these guys. And so there's this interview um, with him. And so the interviewer asks, did you kill anyone yourself? And he says, oh, I, a good few. You know, you couldn't tell... Uh, you couldn't tell really because you jumped out of the jeep and you lay down on the grass and you just went brr with a machine gun. It's, not a, it's an automatic rifle, and you don't know whether it's your bullet that kills them or not. Question, but wouldn't they include women and children and old people? Uh, not so many. Our captain wouldn't allow it. You were supposed to shoot at them all. So he just contradicts himself there. That was the instructions you got. Shoot at the lot, destroy them, burn the village, kill the chickens and goats, chop the trees down if they go to the jungle and come back. Uh, and if they come back, they won't find anything. So she asks, these were the Baluba tribesmen? These were the supporters of Lumumba. Uh, yes, that was the Baluba, yes. Um, but that would mean they would starve when they came back. Answer, 
that was the idea. If you don't shoot them, starve them to death. But our captain was what you might call a humanitarian type, and he believed in mercy. You know what I mean. What? <laughs> Question. Well, didn't you feel unhappy working in that kind of setup, mercenary? No, I thought it was a great life, mine. There were no regular hours. You were free as a bird. You didn't clock in or clock out. It was nice weather, you know. You got everything provided, all you could eat, cigarettes and stuff like that. You knew all the time your money was piling up in the bank. Question. I was just thinking, actually, of working under the instructions of people who ordered you to kill women and children and wipe out villages. Mercenary. That was the Belgians' idea. When they said shoot everybody, they said the women were worse than the men and the kids because they hid behind the bushes, and when you were passing, you know, they would cut you with a machete. Question. But they were fighting for themselves. You were fighting for money. Mercenary. Yes, they were fighting for themselves. I mean, the Belubas are cannibals for a start. They're savages. I mean, so you don't class them anyway as normal people, like shooting, say, Irishmen or even Germans. So just an insight into the kind of mercenary mentality. That's what was going on in the Congo in 1961. And that's exactly what's going on in Syria today, where armies of mercenaries are just pouring, have poured in and are pouring into the country who are just fighting for money and think it's just a great life. You know, they get food, they get cigarettes, and they get to kill a bunch of women and children, and they're paid to do it, and they'll do it. And I think that's where people just can't really grok about the situation in Syria, at least in the mainstream media, is just the reality of what's going on and who, who the Syrian army and the Russians are fighting. They're fighting these maniac mercenaries from other countries who have come in just because they're being paid and for the hell of it. Well, yeah, I mean, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that interview uh, that you just read, Harrison, I mean, it just, it strikes you as, like, completely psychopathic. And it's surreal. It's very surreal. And, you know, you have the interviewer asking, well, you know, wasn't this a hard life? And, you know, she's talking about killing women and children. And oh, no, it's great. You know, yeah, we get free cigarettes and the weather's awesome. And, and you know, I, I, I get free time. And, you know, how how bizarre is that? But that is the mentality, like you said, of, uh, you know, these, these mercenaries, um, you know, so-called terrorists. They're really paid mercenaries in, in Syria. And, well, you know, the, the other thing about uh, all of that, Harrison, is that, you know, I think uh, like sometimes we tend to look at the events since 9/11 and say, "Oh, you know, the, the U.S. has turned evil, or the West has become this, you know, yeah. this really imperial uh, uh, kind of complex of nations that are doing these evil things." And and the answer there is no. They, you know, they have been the infrastructure, the 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 psychopathic uh, uh, drives and um, and uh, objectives. Have always been there, mm-hmm. and um, and it, it's it's only now, however, that the the kind of uh, the maw of, of of this monster is breaching the surface of the water, and uh, it's become a lot more clear to a lot more people who are paying attention uh, of what we're dealing with, and um, and so that was a really fascinating read and connection to um, to what we're seeing in Syria today. And it also reminded me quite a bit of uh, Hugo Chavez and his um, his pan Latin America mm-hmm. uh, Latin American efforts in uh, in trying to throw off the yoke of uh, of, of U.S. interests as well. And um, you know he he came out and said that his cancer he thought was induced by the West, um, other people as well, uh, and and this is what they do. Um, 
you know, it, it wasn't until Martin Luther King Jr. started speaking out of, about the, the war in Vietnam and, um, and really kind of uh, um, organizing his efforts towards a more international uh, understanding and, and, uh, and response to racism and classism and, uh, and the, the kind of uh, oppression by the elite. I mean, that's what got him killed. Um, <clears throat> you know, who knows where he, where he would have been if he had kind of contained um, his efforts to just uh, making conditions and, and life for blacks a little easier um, for Americans. But that's, that's, that, it wasn't in him. He, his vision grew greater. And so, uh, you know, it might be interesting on a later show, Harrison, if uh, you can kind of uh, continue a little bit as you make your way through the book and, and discuss yeah. uh, Hammer, Hammer Skull's um, uh, goals and, and, um, and cool. how it was he was killed. Let's try to see if we can get Susan Williams on the show talk about it. Mm-hmm. Because recently, like this book was written a couple of years ago, right, and it came out right before the UN kind of reopened the investigation into Hammerschel's death, which uh, they, replaced, they released their report about a year ago, I think. And, but there's not, there hasn't been much um, or anything in the news about it since then. But they basically came to the conclusion, yeah, that it was suspicious. There was probably someone, some, some other party involved. It wasn't just an accident. It wasn't pilot error. Um, but yeah, we'll see about that. If we can't get her on, we'll talk about it again in the future. But uh, just on the subject, I want to read a, something from a speech that Gaddafi gave to the UN General Assembly in 2009, uh, kind of on the subject. So I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs here. He said, why should we keep silent about these things? Those who keep silent regarding what is right is like a silent devil. We won't be silent devils. It is our right because we are keen on world peace. We are keen on the destiny of the world. We do not want to undermine humanity in this matter. In this manner, the General Assembly has to launch investigations of the, of the assassinations. We have to launch an investigation once again on the assassination of Patrice Lumumba. We want this recorded in our African history, how an African leader, an African liberator who was assassinated, we want to establish who killed him and to record that for history so that our sons will learn history and we will know why Patrice Lumumba, the hero, the hero of African Congolese liberation, was killed. Even after 50 years, that act has, has to be denounced and those responsible have to be held accountable. The file has to be opened and we have to go back to the old documents. Then we would like to know who killed the UN Secretary General Hammerschild, who bombed his aircraft in 1961, the same year in which Lumumba was killed, we want to know who bombed the plane of the UN Secretary General. We want to know who bombed it and who ha- had an interest in that. Then we come to Kennedy's assassination in 1963. The UN General Assembly has to open a file of Kennedy's assassination. We want to know why he was killed. He was killed by someone called Lee Harvey, and someone called Jack Ruby killed Lee Harvey, the, assassination, the assassin of Kennedy. We want to know why this Jack Ruby, the Israeli, killed the, assassina- the assassin of Kennedy and why Jack Ruby himself, the killer of Kennedy's killer, also died in vague circumstances before his trial. We have to return to these files and we have to know. What I know of, of what the world knows and what we studied in history is that Kennedy decided to inspect the Israeli Demona reactor and to see whether it has nuclear bombs. That is the reason he, got, he was got rid of. As long as the case is international in this manner and it concerns world peace and weapons of mass destruction we have to open investigation into the reasons why kennedy was killed you should also open the file of martin luther king and he goes on and on um 
um, Khalil al-Wazir, the Palestinian Abu Jihad, um, Abu Ayyad, three Palestinians killed in, in Lebanon, uh, Maurice Bishop, head of Granada, and he goes on and on with a few others. Um, so I just thought that was, well, it's typical Gaddafi, which was great, um, kind of just just speaking the truth totally and fully and just coming out with all this stuff. Um, uh, he laid it all out yeah. there. I mean, you know, you, you don't, there's very few leaders. You know, he, he also reminds me uh, a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of uh, Chavez and, you know, he's just, he's just so, he says things so bluntly mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, Putin does as well, but he, I think he, Putin has a layer of uh, strategy that he, that he's working towards and, and I think that's also why he's been so successful while, um, you know, a lot of uh, these other heroes, you know, have been have been killed. Um, you know, when you're reading those passages uh, from, from the book, um, you know, it, similar to what Elon was saying about, you know, the, the, the U.S. has been like this all along, it, it really struck home for me because, you know, it was uh, it was Belgium who was was in mm-hmm. uh, the Congo. You know, it wasn't necessarily the, the U.S. And it was this threat to just imperial power. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the imperialists need to have this united front. And you know, they're they're driven uh, towards these uh, these ideals, if you can call them ideals, whatever the uh, the antithesis of <laughs> ideals, but. Um, you know that they, they share these things and and they're they're driven by them and you know there are so many parallels with uh, with what happened then and and, to, and with today. Yeah, and they were like all these all these nations and individual individuals. They're part of the same club, and they tend to see the world in a similar way. And just one of the typical responses um, in regard to the Congo situation was um, again. Well, I'll just read this paragraph. So uh, let's wait. So the UN compa- oh, sorry. So this was um, one of the imperialist guys. Um, he would said, um, "The UN command here." So this was a spy that's saying this. The UN command here has, for some fantastic reason, chosen to lean now towards some form of support for Lumumba. So the CIA spy was just totally flabbergasted that the UN would support the leader of Congo. He just couldn't comprehend it. And then to illustrate the point, he recounted a conversation he had heard between uh, Dial and William Anderson of the United Press International, uh, witnessed by Neil Bruce of the BBC. So Anderson asks this guy, Mr. Dial, if Colonel Mobutu goes to New York, through what mechanism will the UN continue to deal? Through the only legally elected body. Will that mean the commissaire, blah, blah, blah? No, the commissaire is surely a creation of Mobutu's. This was a, the colonel guy who had kind of taken over part of it. Uh, the parliament is the only duly elected body, as is the government formed under it, Anderson. You mean to say that you would deal with Lumumba's government and him? Uh, we certainly would. After all, he is the only duly elected leader here, and we must proceed on the basis of democratic principle. So the Anderson guy just couldn't comprehend... Well, so you're actually going to deal with the democratically elected leader of the Congo? Uh, like, how, how does that work? Uh, well, you know, foreign language. That that speech that um, that you read a minute ago uh, by Gaddafi. I don't know if it was 
that particular one or something very much like it, uh, there's a video of him addressing, I think it's the Arab League, uh, mm-hmm. which is a, a kind of a convening of, of all the leaders of the Arab nations, in which he's saying very similar things, if, if that wasn't the same um, speech. And, uh, you know, and the, the camera kind of uh, takes shots of, of various leaders listening to Gaddafi, and they're laughing. They're mocking him. And, um, and even Assad, who uh, I, I don't think really uh, understood the implications of, of what Gaddafi was saying, he didn't understand it viscerally, was, was smiling in a kind of, uh, oh, you know, Gaddafi, he's a, he's a bit of a crackpot, uh, you know, talking about all of this. Um, but uh, it, it's, really, it's really amazing to think that, um, that Gaddafi was so vilified and demonized in the West for so long. Um, and, and far from that, he was, uh, he was really quite a courageous guy uh, who, who had a good head on his shoulders and who had the balls uh, to, to say these things uh, to, to, other, to, to the world, basically. Well, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, we were talking a little bit before um, about how the West is, uh, is really quite in the dark on the subject of what's actually going on in Syria. And um, just a week ago, uh, there was an article by uh, Stephen Kinzer of the Boston Globe, a pretty kind of um, smart but semi-establishment newspaper in the U.S., uh, talking about uh, Western media lying about Syria. And um, it pretty much uh, doesn't hold back and, um, and kind of says it as it is about how poorly uh, the U.S. media has been uh, doing its job in, in bringing facts to people's awareness. Um, and there have been a number of other articles and reports about that article. I think I read one in Sputnik and uh, Jonathan Cook, who writes uh, primarily about um, events in the Middle East, commented on it. He said that uh, Kinzer didn't go quite far enough and, and pointed to the fact that the very reason uh, that individuals are, are in these positions of power uh, in the U.S. media um, is because they're expected to, and they know they're expected to, just listen to um, the authorities, U.S. government, and they're basically kind of just parroting and repeating uh, the the party line about what the you know, what the narrative is, but they don't they don't get to the bottom. They're not doing their job. They're not journalists. So uh, we have we have this guy Kinzer coming out with this article. A lot of people have paid attention to it. He's not, uh, you know, he's not Mike Whitney on Counterpunch or, um, you know, Paul Craig Roberts on his website getting uh, getting coverage by Global Research and Sought. I mean, he's in print, and uh, I think I think you know we can only really point to a handful of times in the past year uh, with the politician Dana Warback and. Uh, and Senator Tulsi Gabbard, or she might be a congresswoman. And I think, like, 
one other lady in the Washington Post who who had written about Russia and how Russia was being demonized. Um, but let's see if if this little in a in a pond of uh, of of lies can cause some ripples. Um, let's see if if more people pay attention, and uh, and hopefully uh, it contributes to people's understanding of the fact that the U.S. is you know, the U.S. is ISIS. The U.S. is ISIL. Uh, the U.S. is uh, all the worst things we can imagine, um, but has had so much experience uh, covering for and and uh, and masking itself um, from. People just don't know. Um, so is that a is that a tiny ray of hope in the in in the awareness information field of of Western thinking and information. Uh, I hope so. Um, uh, it may come to a point where you know there's a, a real kind of uh, tipping point in understanding of of what of what the U.S. government, shadow government, intelligence agencies, uh, uh, banking industry, all of these elite powers, what they actually are, uh, and that is, you know, they are basically. Uh, the psychopathic elite, um, you know, like that that mercenary um, or CIA fellow who who was kind of completely um, uh, bewitched and bewildered on how uh, the Congo should have its own democratically elected leader. Um, you know, that, that's that's who these guys are, uh, and. Um, you know, hopefully someday soon we're we're going to have people kind of really waking up in a much greater way to the situation that we're faced with here. Well, you know, I, I think um, we can't expect you know, the whole of mainstream media to make any kind of significant um, statements of truth. There will be, you know, more and more people who, you know, do have a conscience and, you know, will... Um, Start to say things as they are, as they see them, and um, you know there was there was in addition to the Boston Globe article, there is another uh, from the Guardian just a few days ago from uh, Mary Dijewski, and you know she talked about the just the, the huge disconnect uh, between what the United States says about Russia and then what's actually going on behind the scenes uh, as far as the agreements being made. And that you know she's she puts it out there you know saying that the um, the administration's its insistence on removing Assad you know was a huge mistake, and that people are seeing this and that you know these um, these new political events are are basically um, you know providing a, a sort of cover for for the U.S. You know that they are making this U-turn um, that, that she states anyway, a major policy U-turn uh, that, that's in progress, and you know the the, the rhetoric is is basically just to cover. You know, there's, there's nothing underneath that, or not much. Well, you know, something else that uh, Kinza writes, which is quite interesting, after you know going into uh, just how many lies were being told about Syria and the U.S.'s complicity in, in supporting the very worst of, uh, of the uh, so-called opposition there. Uh, he says, 
Inevitably, this kind of disinformation has bled into American presidential campaign. At the recent debate in Milwaukee, Hillary Clinton claimed that the United Nations peace efforts in Syria were based on, quote, an agreement I negotiated on June of 2012 in Geneva, end quote. The precise opposite is true. In 2012, Secretary of State Clinton joined Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Israel in a successful effort to kill Kofi Annan's UN peace plan because it would have accommodated Iran and kept Assad in power, at least temporarily. No one in the Milwaukee stage knew enough to challenge her. So, folks, if you have an opportunity to challenge Hillary Clinton, <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if there are any Hillary Clinton supporters listening to The Truth Perspective today. Uh, maybe you can pass this on to someone who is that you know. Challenge her. Challenge her on Gaddafi. Uh, you know, challenge all of these cookie cutter um, uh, hacks, political hacks for empire, uh, who are who are lying in our faces, uh, who are showing us nothing but contempt um, for uh, for truth. And for us, and for and for basic, you know, values, common sense, um, they are the ones who are basically uh, in the process of destroying not only countries in the Middle East, uh, but the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is is uh, in the midst of imploding uh, on several levels, precisely because of the lies uh, that these that these. Uh, creatures are, are propagating. Challenge them. Find ways to challenge them. Um, you know, even though it disgusts me to see all of these articles about Trump and Clinton and and uh, and Cruz and and all of these types, um, you know, on side, it needs to be said. People need to know. Um, so, another another pebble thrown in the pond of lies uh, in the U.S. Perhaps. Well, it's it's kind of you know the uh, a little earlier you were talking about you know, the the desperation uh, of countries like Saudi Arabia and Turkey and and the U.S. and you know the the flip side of that is that they will be making you know more blatant and obvious lies and statements that you know are are just so egregious and obvious. <laughs> You know, and and you know, as that it's, it's like a, a a snow a snowball rolling down hill. You know, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know, the longer you avoid it, the better chances that you're going to get you know, just rolled underneath. But you know, how can you not see these things? Obviously, you know, for the majority of uh, people uh, in, in the United States, anyway, you know, it's uh, I think we're just so tied into. Uh, the the belief system of either American exceptionalism or or just you know just plain tired, um, but you know I think with the uh, with these lies and you know with wanting to expose you know, uh, all these lies, you know, it's it, it there is it, you know there does seem to be uh, a, a correction uh, in economic terms uh, that you know they call. When uh, economy corrects itself, it's it's, basi- it's basically like a, a mini collapse. Um, but you know, it's it's when things um, 
kind of come to the fore and you know you can see reality as it is and you know the uh the correction that you know seems to be coming you know is is the both the lies that that have been uh, made as well as you know the the structure that the that the that these lies are made of you know that that's coming down and you know that has you know a lot of um kind of frightening implications um but also some uh some possibilities too uh for for a different kind of uh a future well before we close for, for today uh I just wanted to come back to Mark Toner because apparently okay. apparently one of the things he said yesterday uh he was asking answering a question on um kind of Moscow's commitment to stop bombing so-called moderate opposition so Toner had said I don't know how to put it any better than saying it's time to put up or shut up time, or it's put up or shut up time. And then uh, so Maria Zakharova responded by saying, Mark had better order his own colleagues to shut up. It's such an idiomatic style of communication is common among American diplomats. Today, the Russian defense ministry held a briefing regarding the beginning of the truce in Syria. Uh, It's been explained clearly and plainly, even for you, Mark, who even failed to answer the question about the acquisition by the U.S. of maps establishing the armistice zone, which were prepared by Russia. Um, So, Mark, until Russia does not shut up, you have the chance to find out what is really going on in Syria. (laughs) Um, So then she she ended by saying, um, what do such harsh statements from the American side tell us? Firstly, of course, they proclaim a lack of any sense, and secondly, a lack of good manners. But most importantly, such rants indicate the American side does not have any other arguments. End. Well said. Well, on that note, perhaps we'll bring the show to a close. I think it's a good time to. And uh, I want to thank, first of all, my uh, co-guests here, Harrison Kelly, Shane LaChance, uh, for a lot of excellent uh analysis of uh, what is a truly big and disgusting situation in Syria today, uh, but also perhaps a hopeful one. Um, I'd like to thank also our caller, Stephen, for his insights. Pleasure to listen to you again, Stephen. Thank you to our chatters uh, for participating as well. And don't forget to tune in to Behind the Headlines tomorrow with Joe and Neil at 12 noon on their new SOT radio website. I'm sure they're going to have a bunch of interesting things to say about uh, the situation in Syria as well. Folks, if you missed it yesterday, um, I heard a lot of wonderful things about the iodine um, theme on health and wellness. Uh, You can look that up on Blog Talk Radio and listen to it. I'm going to listen to it this weekend. Um, Lots of interesting things from what I understand. And they will be doing their show again uh, next week, same time, same station. Uh, In the meantime, thank you for listening in. And we hope to visit with you next weekend. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, everybody. See ya. It's been nice.